The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about love, and who doesn't want love? It's about love in your brain. And I've been reading this wonderful book called Wired for Love, how understanding your partner's brain and attachment style can help you diffuse conflict and build a secure relationship. And this is by Stan Tatkin, P-S-Y-D and M-F-T. And I want to tell you a little bit about him. I'm excited to have him join us. Stan is a clinician, researcher, teacher, and developer of PACT, a psychobiological approach to couple therapy. He has a clinical practice in beautiful Calabasas, California, and he developed the PACT Institute for the purpose of training other psychotherapists to use this method in their clinical practice. And in addition to teaching, uh, he supervises family medicine residents at Kaiser Permanente in Woodland Hills, California, and he's an assistant clinical professor at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine in the Department of Family Medicine. And he's on the board of directors of Lifespan Learning Institute, and he serves as a member on Relationships First Consult, which is a nonprofit founded by Harville Hendricks, who I've read his book, um, and he has actually wrote the foreword to uh, Stan's book, and um, and Helen La Kelly Hunt. So he's done some wonderful things. And let me just tell you, he also has some books and CDs. His CD, Your Brain on Love and Neurobiology of Healthy Relationships is six CDs to help you improve your relationship in love. And then this wonderful book that I have here that I just told you about, Wired for Love, How Understanding Your Partner's Brain and Attachment Style Can Help You Diffuse Conflict, which I'm always looking at, and Build a Secure Relationship. And he has another book where he is the co-author, and that is Love and War in Intimate Relationships. So we're just thrilled to have him. You can find out more about him at Stan Tatkin, that's T-A-T-K-I-N dot com. And also you can go to our website at conflicthealing.com, and you'll see his picture, JPEG of his book, and his bio, and we also link to his website. So we are thrilled to have you join us. I know you recently got back from Australia, so we're we're thrilled to have you with us, Stan. 
Thank you, Mari. It's good to be here. Well, this is a, a, a wonderful book. I've read a lot about how, you know, how we can change our brain. I've been reading books and, and interviewing people on that. And changing our brain and changing the way we think changes our brain, and, and it can help our relationships. So I, I know that um, Harville Hendricks has written a foreword to your book, and he says that healthy couples create healthy societies. So what do you think about that? Well, I am a believer of that as well. Um, you mentioned the Relationships First Council. Uh, this is a, uh, a nonprofit organization that will be launched uh, this, later this year. Uh, and uh, many couples experts, Harville being one of them and at the helm of this, of this uh, organization, uh, has a 50-year mission to change the, the culture um, because uh, many of us in the field are concerned about people drifting apart, especially couples. So we're focusing in the beginning on couple relationships. And, uh, you know, couple, good, secure, functioning couple not only serves the family, everybody believe, you know, beneath them, uh, like the children, but also uh, everybody around them as well, uh, other family members, uh, uh, community, uh, uh, and so on. So we think it's very important. Absolutely. If you think about it, that, you know, a healthy couple having healthy children, then they become healthy and they meet other hopefully healthy people. And so it changes that way as well, besides just kind of putting that energy out into the community and out into the world. So it's wonderful. I I just really uh, honor you for what you're doing and would love to learn more about that wonderful, you know, that new console that you're starting since that is um, definitely something that that I um, favor and promote and support as well. Now, you talk about uh, the brain in, in your book, and scientists say that biologically our, our brains are wired for war. But um, what do you think about that? Well, we're, uh, our brains are wired more for war than love simply because uh, for survival's uh, sake. I mean, we, uh, a great part of our brain is devoted to staying alive and not getting killed. Right, so survival. That measure, that's, <laughs> that's just normal biology. It's normal um, human nature, which is why, uh, why we focus so much on the books, this issue of threat, uh, that one of the things that causes more problems than probably anything else in love relationships is the matter of threat. And I'm not talking about you know, big T threat, like, you know, uh, 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 you know, hitting somebody or pointing a gun at someone. I'm talking right. about um, things that we don't really think about, such as the raising of an eyebrow or the grunt of a noise of a dismissive, uh, re- you know, uh, response to somebody or, you know, a, uh, a shrug of the shoulder um, or the baring of teeth. I mean, in any number of things can be threatening to our partner, and this is a great deal of what we focus on in terms of our brain being, you know, sort of tweaked for looking out for danger and threat. Exactly. So um, how do we shift from a pro-self to a pro-relationship stance? I know, you know, I do a lot of divorce mediation, and I've been doing it for 27 years now. And um, I can see what happens here with blame and guilt. I mean, I can see that that is the root of all evil. (laughs) His blame and guilt back and forth in the opposite of each other. And I just see people, when they come to me, they are obviously in a place where they're very pro-self. 
You know, they're very pro-self. And I'm sure that has been happening for a long period of time or they wouldn't get to the point of wanting divorce. So how how do we shift people before they get to that point where they're just ending the relationship? How do we shift it? Well, there are two things. One is that by the time you see people, um, they are uh, probably predators to each other. Uh, and that's because of, of repeated mistakes, repeated errors. Um, of of being misattuned, of of making mistakes, of injuring the other partner without any repair, without any correction, and this repeats over and over again and builds up a threat response. So you see people uh, at the tail end when they're fully threatened by one another. Right. But there are people that go into relationships um, um, in a a mindset, a culture that is uh, pro self, and that has to do with the culture of our parents, of the way we're raised, and whether the family puts or the parents put uh, a very strong emphasis on relationships first, or whether other things come before relationships. Mm. And so this, <clears throat> this becomes um, a system uh, by which children adapt. Um, we all adapt to our environment. That's what our brain is good at doing. And so this is simply adaptation. It's not pathology. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just nature. Uh, and so if we come from a family where, where something came before relationships, we came from a family where there was too much unfairness, injustice, and insensitivity too much of the time, then we're likely to be what's called insecure, insecurely attached. And insecurely attached people tend to uh, operate in a world where it's, it has to be good for me and it doesn't necessarily have to be good for you, especially when push comes to shove. Mm. And this then recreates the very same kind of uh, unfair, unjust system uh, that got them there in the first place. And so, again, this is nature at its best, right? Right. We only do what we know, and what we know is what we've experienced. We are nothing really more in, in, a, in a way than memory machines. You know, we, we operate by memory. Right. So a lot of us go into relationships basically with an idea uh, that we're not really a team or we're not in the same foxhole. We're really in separate foxholes. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and then there's a cascade towards this problem of being threatened and a problem of feeling misunderstood and lonely and unloved, and then you see them. <laughs> right, right, right. I have to tell you the good news, because I mediate rather than litigate now. Right. Yeah. Um, I have had, over the 27 years, it isn't a lot, but I still feel pretty good about it. It would never happen litigation. I've had 20 couples get back together. Oh, that's lovely. And, yeah, learning in mediation, the kinds of things that you're talking about, is really kind of getting to the point where I teach them the effect of listening, the act of listening, the, you know, really getting to deep stuff about what really happened, saying they're sorry, you know, there's usually some love left, and so that it can be rekindled. It doesn't happen often, but at least by the time they leave me, they're not hateful. They're they're cooperative, and they can be good. They can co-parent, and most of them, not all of them, but most of them can. You mentioned yeah. something very interesting because as a couple therapist, I I see a lot of uh, couples on you know death door. They you know they're uh, some of them have already divorced, but there's always proof of life, um, or most often proof of life. There's something there because. I think uh, breaking up, it, like the song, uh, breaking up is very hard to do. <laughs> right. And relationships are very sticky. Um, 
And so many times uh, a person such as yourself or a skilled couple therapist can, uh, can leverage that feeling of uh, that breaking up is hard to do and turn a couple, a couple around perhaps uh, and direct them more towards secure functioning. Uh, yes, secure they, functioning, by the way, yeah. um, is a two-person system, a psychological system of true mutuality. Right. And, and one of the things that I've learned is it only takes one person to change the game. You know, if one person starts to use some of the tools that I give them, for example, in, you know, really listening, you know, mirroring back, asking open-ended questions, and, and doing some of the stuff where you really listen and re- without judgment, that, that, uh, then that starts to change the game. Because the other person will be kind of surprised by that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if one person changes, it does change the relationship. It may not make it perfect, but it surely does change it. That's, uh, you know, at least my experience. So that makes it a little bit easier. So, what do you mean by you talk in your book about psychobiological approach? So, um, can you explain that for us? A psychobiological approach is using more than just psychology as a uh, as a template for understanding people. Um, I think now with the with gains in in the area of neuroscience, therapists becoming smarter uh, in the areas of medicine and physiology, biology. Um, we need, especially working, I think, with other human beings, we need more than just simple psychological theory. And so a psychobiological approach really takes uh, uh, several different disciplines, uh, several di- different theoretical frameworks uh, that includes psychology, but also biology, neurobiology or neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically as much as we can from the hard sciences to understand people and understand what is really going on in front of us. So psychobiological approach is a developmental approach that's looking at the brain, the body, uh, and the mind. Yeah, yeah. And body, mind, spirit, too. <laughs> and, well, of course, and spirit, I should add that, yes. <laughs> yeah. I know when um, I have a technique, when people, I see them getting really tense in their body or something happening to them in the mediation, and we do some breathing exercises, and we do some some things where they start to recognize that when they get upset, when a button gets pushed that they have a reaction in their body, whether it's a tightness in their throat or a knife in their solar plexus or a crushing in their chest. When they start to get in touch with that, that seems to be helpful so that they, their body doesn't take over the emotions, that they can start to at least um, release that and, and stay centered. So I don't know if that's part of that, but um, that seems to be helpful for me, for my clients, when, when things get very heated. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good idea. In, in PACT, what we do is we pay a very, very close attention to micro-expressions in the face and the eyes, um, mm. changes in the voice and micro-movements in the body. Mm. This is what we track very closely, um, and not so much what people say, because words and, and thought... Uh, uh, in terms of thinking, uh, the way we normally think of thinking, um, is slower than what's going on at a lower level. Right. Uh, so we're monitoring the lower brain that's acting fast and operating according to memory, mm. and we're also alerting partners to pay better attention uh, to each other's 
faces and cues, voice, vocal cues, and so on. Right, right. And and it's funny because um, un, unconsciously or consciously, um, we we do pick up those things. You know, so like when you were talking about where you're in the room with your husband and he makes a face and you ask him what's wrong and he says nothing, you know that that's not true. <laughs> you know what I mean? The The facial expressions are so revealing and um and i know i i watch people's body language in their face when they're in mediation because i'll say something like something's going on here and, and you got to help me understand what's going on what is going on with you right now you know I, I i i missed something here help me understand and sometimes they can do it and sometimes they can't um but they know that they should be conscious of it so are well we, let me just speak to that for a second okay one of the problems uh is that uh, at close distances we're wired to be able to read another person faster than we can read our own body. And so you and I are sitting together. You can see what's going on in me before I can tell, but I can see what's going on in you before you can tell. And this is the lovely aspect of, of couples. Um, in close proximity, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, um, uh, they are able, at least, uh, you know, hopefully they're able to what we call co-regulate or interactively regulate each other's nervous systems by uh, by seeing what's going on in the face and the voice and the body and so on and responding appropriately. This is when all the equipment is working properly. And uh, and again, like I said before, there there isn't this accruing of threat that makes people very um, primitive. You know, when you're talking about this, I start worrying about these younger people in relationships where most of their relationship is through texting. <laughs> is, is what I'm sorry? Is through texting, you oh, know? texting, yes. Yeah, and, and uh, electronically, and they're not really sitting and talking. I mean, I have seen people sitting at a restaurant where they're, they're, at, they're both they're texting each other, right, at the restaurant instead of talking. And, um, you know, so I, that that really interferes with that ability to watch each other's, you know, body and face and, you know, the misunderstandings through the words that, that are written and the electronic means. So um, when you're talking about really talking yeah. and being with each other, I, I just I do have a concern about that in the future. Well, you know, we always lament about the, the next generation is somehow being crazy. Um, and everything is going to go down the tubes. I, I'm sure when uh, uh, the early generation found fire, the older generation looked uh, down their nose at that. <laughs> but um, it is what it is, and that's not going away. The problem isn't isn't really the technology that's out there that is uh, allowing people to multitask and to be um, overly stimulated. That is a problem. The big problem, I think, lies in the first 18 months of life, and mm. um, where where families uh, are no longer mothers, uh, caregivers are no longer getting sufficient support mm. um, to do face-to-face, skin-to-skin, eye-to-eye contact, continuous contact, um, through a, a, rel- a well-regulated mother by another person or people, and that these first 18 months are critical in setting up parts of the brain that are able to be socially, emotionally intelligent. Mm. Um, and so for those people who have gotten that in the first 18 months, um, I don't think these technological distractions and problems are going to be uh, a huge uh, problem interpersonally. For children who are not getting that, and there are more and more, I think, that, uh, where this is happening, 
then the technology um, uh, becomes a part of um, a deficit or a deficit structure that's there. And that is worrisome because yeah. um, we could, you know, start to imagine as we're starting to see um, more child-on-child crime and, and more uh, antisocial behavior with children. So that's a worry, I think, not about uh, our, our tendency to invent new, new ways of doing right, stuff. Right, right, right. But, again, the problem with that, that first 18 months of life and whether that, that experience of face-to-face, because we're wired for faces, right. um, is there sufficiently uh, to, uh, to build out that part of the brain, that part of the system that makes people good citizens. Yeah, so I, I just have seen uh, young mothers who are, you know, looking at their cell phones when they're breastfeeding their babies, you know what I mean? And they're not doing that eye-to-eye. They're doing something else, whether breastfeeding or doing something else. So I think that's something that, that would be a concern that, um, that, that, that there's not that connection that you're talking of building when you're the first 18 months of life. And there's not really the, um, there's a lessening cultural support um, for uh, caregivers uh, having children and uh, and really being supported by a network of people or community of people, uh, let alone a secondary partner, you know. Right, right. You know, we always hear that you can't really love anybody else unless you love yourself. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that can't be true because uh, we learn to love ourselves first by being loved. Everything we learn basically socially, emotionally, is from the outside in. It's outside mm-hmm. first. If you were raised by wolves, the issue of loving yourself would never come up. Um, so, you know, love thyself is really a, a, a matter of interpersonal relations. Um, we're constantly changing the way we feel about ourselves depending on how we relate to others. Uh, treat people badly, and you also probably don't feel very good about yourself. So it's a two-way street. There is no, um, there is no going into a cave um, or reading a book or going to a workshop to learn how to love yourself. That's something that's done in real time with another person, um, and that would either be uh, a parent or a therapist or uh, you know a clergyman, a best friend or a lover. Um, so uh, this idea of you have to learn to love yourself uh, before you can learn to love another is uh, utter. Um, nonsense. (laughs) Okay, okay. Now, we've heard statistics that married people live longer, and that's good to know. But um, what is new new is that people who get married tend to be happier in the first place than those who don't marry. So what should I tell my single friends? There are plenty of uh, single people who are quite happy. And the happiness, I think, here is less to do with being married than uh, being connected to others. Uh, so there are single people who are quite happy, and they're very, very social. They're very connected to others. They depend on others. They have a social network. They're not isolated. They're not alone. Um, people who are in marriages who are isolated can be as crazy and can become as sick as people who are not married and isolated. People who are married and are in a bad marriage, and when I say bad, I'm saying, I mean, where there is constant conflict and contempt and disgust, uh, which is very hard on the uh, on the stress system on every organ in the body, uh, and so uh, to say that to be married may, it means you'll live longer is not necessarily true. If you are um, at war in your marriage, then you'll probably not live very long. 
Um, so I think it has to be qualified. A marriage that is secure functioning, um, your, uh, people are going to live longer, they look younger, they're going to be healthier, and they're nicer. Right. Um, but that has to do with, uh, again, the, the quality, the quality of yeah. and, and the idea of fairness, justice, and sensitivity, of mutuality, of dependency. And we have a lot of people who, um, for various reasons, either don't know how to do that or are averse to it, and they're more likely to get sick. Right, right. Well, you, you talk about the couple bubble. What is that? A couple bubble is basically an idea, this sort of semi-permeable membrane, um, uh, where two people uh, are, are agreeing to be in each other's care and to protect each other in public and private, to be the go-to people, to be the first to know, to tell each other everything. In other words, they're in the foxhole together, and they are an energy system that re, you know uh, um, refreshes itself every day and supports itself. The the two people operating in this two person system uh, are able to do more in life because they have more energy. They're tethered to another person. They're they're more secure. Life is not as scary, um, uh, and uh, and it serves a survival purpose. You know, animals pair bond uh, to protect from predators. Um, and uh, humans should pair bond not just for that purpose, but to thrive, to serve a purpose um, greater than simply, uh, you know, one that is uh, because we love each other, or because we have children, or because our, uh, our religion says so. Um, uh, it has to serve a purpose where we're doing something for each other that we can't hire someone else to do. Um, you know, we're each other's burdens. We do things for each other that are very expensive because um, it's burdensome. People are burdensome. So that's the idea of a couple bubble, is that uh, these two people are uh, in league with one another, um, have pacts with each other, agreements, that protect both, uh, both people uh, and allow them to thrive in the world. Yeah. You know, in your book, and again, I want to mention this book by uh, Stan Tatkin, if you've just tuned in, it's called Wired for Love, How Understanding Your Partner's Brain and Attachment Style Can Help You Diffuse Conflict and Build a Secure Relationship. So Stan, in your book, you, you go into detail about the psychology of the brain or the physiology of the brain and that some areas of the brain are more adaptable to be rewired for healthy and loving relationships. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the, the entire brain is plastic. There's lots of argument about plasticity, uh, but there are areas of the brain that are more plastic, such as the, the higher cortical areas are smart brain, this, but it actually operates very slow, and it's a, a energy resource hog. So the, the, the conscious, smart part of us, the neocortex, the, um, that is more plastic um, than the lower areas, the subcortical areas, or in the book we call them uh, primitives. Um, th- those are slower to change because they operate on memory. And, and basically it's that part, that's that area of the brain, the subcortical area, that's really running our lives. Uh, we tend to think that we're consciously making more choices than we really are. We're basically running our day-to-day life um, via this automatic, you know, uh, subcortical, uh, very fast 
but, um, but not very plastic brain. Uh, and so uh, in therapy, at least in PACT therapy, we have to focus on that part of the brain more than the fancy cognitive talking part. That part's easy to shift and change, but guess what? As soon as we're under stress, uh, the lower brain always wins out. Mm. Always. So that's the part that we have to focus on and to change, and that's in our muscles, in our body, in our reflexes, in our memory banks. Um, this is uh, uh, the part of our brain that recognizes um, what is happening and, and matching that recognition to something that happened in the past. So we have to change our memories, right? We, uh, yeah, I don't think that's. I don't think that part is easily done. Uh, create by new memories. I mean, you know, create new memories that you can think about things differently when you create new memories. That easier said than done. We have ways of we have ways of doing that in therapy. I don't know, um, uh, you know, if that's as easier easy uh, to do in real life, because um, when when you and I interact, the smartest we can be, as much as we change uh, in that upper part of the brain. Um, if we get into a certain state of mind, um, and, and we're now a different, uh, we're different because of that state of mind, we're going to fall back on old reflexes. Um, no matter how smart we are, we're just going to do what we know. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, it, changing that part of the brain is, is a little trickier. Well, this is a wonderful book. We can, I'm sorry that we are just out of time. Wired for Love, and this is Stan Tatkin. And Stan, why don't you just give us your website, and then it's time for us to go. It's stantatkin.com. Oh, well, thank you so much, and we will have you back again. Take care. Thank you, Maury. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. for Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.